0: Hey, 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 chaos! Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Hey, chaos! Hello, everyone. How you doing? Welcome to another episode on Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am here today with another outstanding guest and someone who has a huge, robust perspective of experience and connections and networking and education that is 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 pretty powerful and, and rather exciting as I've got a chance to get to know this this guest for our show today. Um, I've learned a lot from him through a network that I'm sure he will talk about here in just a little bit on what schools could be. I know some of you listening in, I have tried to bring you on board as I think it's one of the platforms that is is really powerful in the education landscape today in terms of positivity uh actual concrete learning and examples and more importantly people who are willing to give time space and and dedication to helping empower everybody involved in the platform whether you're in the classroom an administrator or a leader or wherever it might be and so um i'm sure we will definitely dive into that community and more but today i'm talking with uh Someone I like to call a friend here, um, and his name is Josh. So, Josh, I want to give you an opportunity here to introduce who you are, what you do, and what in the world you got going on.
1: Thank you, Aaron. It's really a pleasure to to be with you today, and it's um, it's awesome to say that we we have an emerging friendship. That's right. Um, and I I can also say I hope I don't drive some of your listeners away right out of the gate. Um, but I'm a, a proud graduate uh, of the University of Iowa. Um, I know that that's where you host your podcast from. So go Hawks! Right out of the beginning, uh, <laughs> there right out go. of the here. You go. Draw the line um, in the
0: sand. <laughs> yeah, draw a line in the sand
1: right down the middle of the state. Right, all you Cyclones fans, you can turn, you can tune out now if you want yep, to. Yeah, there you
0: go. There you go. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. I was. I'm born and raised in Hawaii. Uh, my family has been in this state for about 104 years um i grew up on the windward side of oahu and on a on a really giant enclosed bay uh one of the largest enclosed bays in the world and i i say that because um my school experience k through 12 was mediocre at best um i don't remember much about it i only had a couple of teachers who really engaged me But every day when I went home, I went home to where we lived on Kaneohe Bay, and that bay became my classroom. It became my playground. It became the place that brought me the most joy and the most engagement, the most inquiry, the most discovery. And so I think my life has been really shaped by that. Um, And the, the older I get now in my 60s, the more I kind of reflect back on how that process of growing up on Kaneohe Bay in a large family, family of nine, a house that was right near the water, um, you know, six boys, one girl. Uh, we, we were um, ocean people um, and we, we just raged around there and just so much of my learning came out of that environment. So for me to be so passionate about experiential education, it kind of goes without saying that there is an origin story to that. Um, And so later, um, after I graduated from uh, independent school here in Honolulu, um, I spent one year in college, that was kind of a waste, played a lot of rugby, drank a lot of beer in (laughs) Oregon, um, and then um, didn't study a lick, by the way, and um, I didn't have a focus at that point, and it really was kind of pointless that I'd gone to college anyway, And so um, long story short, I ended up um, attending something called the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco. I became a professional chef. I did that for about 10 years. Then I switched out of that into hotel management. And I did that in California and came back to Hawaii and did some hotel management here in Honolulu. And at that point, I, I developed, Aaron, a hunger to go back and finish my undergrad. I felt like I was ready. I was in my 30s. And so I had a dear friend that had been my roommate in San Francisco and he was from Iowa. And he's the reason I chose University of Iowa to um, go back and finish my undergrad. So I went back and oh my God, was I ready to study. At that point, I had you know 12 years of professional business experience under my belt. I was motivated, I wanted to learn. I knew what I wanted to learn, which was history. And um, I also was starting to think a little bit about whether I wanted to be a teacher or not. Mm. And so <clears throat> I graduated from University of Iowa in 1993. Um, I did not have a good experience uh, with their college of education, felt like it was a lot of redundancies for me, things i had been thinking about for a long time. So I did not go through that. Um, I ended up getting my degree in history, and then I tracked back to teaching here in Hawaii. So I moved home um, and got a Talk my way into a job at the school that I graduated from, Punahou School, um, and the rest is really history, <laughs> no pun intended. I taught history for 17 years at three different independent schools here in Honolulu, and one of them was eight years at a small all-girls independent school, mm. and that was the most formative experience for me because that's when I really started to push the boundaries of who I was as a teacher, I started taking risks, and I I joke about this with people. But I had the good fortune of having a classroom that was literally on the edge of campus, and all of the things that I was doing, pretty much nobody, including admin, did not know what I was doing. <laughs> um, and, I, and you know, I was doing crazy things like setting up a YouTube channel for the classroom when YouTube first showed up. Uh, no waivers, no parent permissions but the parents loved having a window into my classroom. Um, And so anyway, it became um, a real interesting time for me to try all of the hyphenated learnings that we talk about, problem-based, challenge-based, place-based, culture-based, everything-based education. I was just trying everything right and left. And so that was a great experience for me. And along the way, um, I developed a, a passion for ed tech. And that was when ed tech was really taking off and everybody was going to ISTE and and so on. And so I was maybe one of the first teachers in Hawaii to have a one-to-one classroom with MacBooks. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of pushed that boundary as well. So in my last uh, private school that I worked at, that was mainly I was teaching history, but also doing the ed tech work. Um, and I love that. I love the fact that initially, Ed tech was all about the devices, but then there was a marvelous correction that happened, where we went back to the pedagogy, back to what learning was all about, um, and so that's really kind of the the formative experience for me. I eventually left teaching. Um, when was that? Two thousand and ten? Oh no, sorry, two thousand and fourteen. And at that point. Uh, not really sure what I needed to do, but I needed a job. I ended up um, going to work for Apple. So I worked Apple retail as a sales specialist. I'm still with them. I've been with them for eight years here in Honolulu. But along the way, um, I became passionate about making a difference in education. I started spending all of my waking hours outside of Apple wanting to work on that. And the key moment for me, was when I actually saw Ted Dintersmith's film Most Likely to Succeed for the first time. That was the game changer for me. Up to that point, Aaron, I I felt like I was not doing a good job of advocating for education because it I didn't I had an agenda, and you know what happens when you have an agenda? You butt up against everybody else's <laughs> <That's> agenda, right? <laughs> um, and so, most likely in a flash, gave me a vision for how I could be involved in education because that film creates opportunities for conversation and I knew that if I just kept screening that film I could have conversation after conversation after conversation about education and that's what happened. I've been doing it for since 2000 and uh, late 2015 when I first saw the film Um, and then subsequent to that I ended up actually working for Ted Dintersmith, first as a volunteer here in Hawaii helping to shape the education conversations and then later um, I went under contract with him, so now I'm an evangelist for his organization, which is WhatSchoolCouldBe.org, um, and I also am the host of the What School Could Be podcast, uh, which is how you and I actually ended up connecting to each other. So that's the that's the quick version of uh, how we ended up here today.
0: No, I love it, and uh, you know, I was, as you're talking through there's just gosh, yeah, so many questions on your journey of how you pivoted and made changes and. It's hard to believe that really, prior to us recording, we, we were just discussing uh, the Deeper Learning Conference that takes place yeah. out at High Tech High in San Diego. And uh, almost a year ago at the time of this recording at Deeper Learning last year is where I learned about the What Schools Could Be platform um, right. with Susanna, mm-hmm. and I got a business card. I was hanging out with Jeff Robin and built connections that way and jumped onto the the platform. And it's hard to believe it's only been a year that I've set on multiple book study learning opportunities <laughs> and community feeds it feels like i've actually known you longer than that and it, it it's really yeah. been a, a relatively short thing and i know with, you have a phenomenal podcast that you host that what schools could be and you just had ted dintersmith on i think just a few episodes episode 100 um, it was so, yeah so that's that's pretty incredible yeah. and 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 maybe we we start there i want to go back to part of your history here in just a second but as you were talking about his his documentary is film on on um that he put together for me i had a similar aha i've been fortunate enough to see some of the work at like high tech high and 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 see things differently from like i always call it like the local filter lens of wherever we live for me it's it's here in the quad cities in in iowa that you have you know you took the risk and left a great little place called hawaii as we're just talking before the recording you're talking about how it's hot and i'm thinking okay i'm here i am in spring break and i still have snow in my backyard so uh (laughs) you know when you talk about being hot i'm like "Eh, i don't really feel bad for you but um (laughs) what i what i thought his work did it was it visually and auditorially was able to articulate i think the issues in education in ways that made sense to a lot of people we can we can hear, we we hear lots of things, education gets beat up. And it wasn't really a, a beat up type thing, but it was like a call to all educators going, you know, yeah. how do we go about doing the things we know works with kids? Like, I think we know what it is and there's just lots of barriers. And to me, it was like, like you said, it was able to articulate the passion behind that. And to me that, you know, you had your calling and that's been my million dollar question and work I do is, how do I help someone see it and understand the process, right. Um, right, in a way that makes sense to them? Because I get it; I've experienced the things, that I experienced good and bad. But yet, I it's that's that's not always easy to do with, with with people who maybe question what quality learning looks like and maybe just haven't experienced it yet, you know. And so, right, um, right. very similar sentiment there. And so, as you know, as you've worked on that, you've had conversations with them and. Uh, his film's been around for a while. Like how has that? I mean, it's it's proved to be a catalyst for you, but what have you seen ongoing? Cause that film's it's been around for a while now. Um, it's yeah. not like it just came Eight out last years. week. Yeah. And so yeah. what have you seen? Has have you have you seen the ripples where you're at locally? Have you seen in other places you've oh, gone yeah. to? I mean, what are oh, some yeah. examples? Um yeah. One, if people haven't seen the film, we'll put the link in the show notes. So people can learn more about it. But two, yeah. you know, it was a catalyst for you. Um, and how have you seen it be, be a springboard for others?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. I um, I think there's a couple things I would love to share with your listeners here that are uh, sort of behind the curtain, if you will. Um, things that Ted has shared with me over the years you know he's been back to hawaii 13 times and i've been the the guy who's curated every visit every time he comes to the state mm-hmm. and i've had the privilege of spending i've had the privilege of spending quite a bit of time in the car with him talking driving him hither and thither and and talking with him about education so a, a key thing for your listeners to know is that ted made a crucial decision once the film debuted at sundance uh january 25th in 2015 um that decision was he'd been approached by Netflix with a pretty ginormous offer to put the film up on Netflix. And he turned them down and he felt like that was a way for the film to die. That was Mm -hmm. going to be the way the film would die is you put it up on Netflix, a few people see it and boom, it's gone replaced by something else. So he went with a community screening model. And so he set up a whole process with an organization um, that actually facilitated that, and in the end, the film, like a you know, like a like a flame that turns into a brush fire, it just blew across the country, in screening after screening after screening at community centers, at schools, small organizations, people's living rooms, and I think that the number the last time I saw it was somewhere around thirteen thousand community screenings as a result of that decision. Oh wow! So that was huge. And that was huge for me, Aaron, because what that meant for me was that I had the opportunity to actually screen the film um, here in Hawaii. And I started doing that as a, quote, community screener. Um, I was just a private citizen, a volunteer working to screen the film and to build these conversations that happened after the film. So that's the first story. The second story is that, and this is something that Ted has shared with me over the years, is that his his director, Greg Whiteley, who's just amazing? You know, uh, Last Chance University, if you haven't caught that series, wow, oh, yeah. it's pretty amazing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Greg, Greg was great. And Greg and Ted really got into a lot of tough discussions about whether they were gonna film at one school or a bunch of schools. Ted wanted to go the bunch of schools route, he wanted to find elements of innovation at a number of different schools around the country and have Greg film at all of them and turned that into a film, Greg wanted to film at high tech high. And so they went at it and eventually Greg won on that. He's the director. And that's the story of how for two years, Greg's team worked at high tech high to capture what was going on. I think that in the end, Greg, that decision by Greg Whiteley was a great one because what happens in the film after the first 15 minutes, which lays out the case for how the world is changing at hyperspeed. And you know, Aaron. You've seen the film. There's a moment in there where uh, one of the individuals, I think he's a, I think he's an IBM tech guy. He talks about how text that you read up on the web, like a formal piece of text that lays out. Like how you would go about getting a divorce or something was actually being written by algorithms, he says. <laughs> right? yeah. And here we are, here we are today recording this interview. And yesterday Chat GPT-4 showed up, yeah, right? I know. Yeah. So we're yeah. we're at this moment, right? So the first 15 minutes of the film lays out the case for how the world is changing at hyperspeed, and that our education system, built in 1893, really is not equipped to get kids ready to handle the hyper-connected world that they live in. And so the rest of the film, as you know, spends its time at high tech high. And then the third thing was the decision to actually track the two stories. If you haven't seen the film, the, the two stories are about two young students, one named Brian and the other named Samantha. And you really get pulled into their stories of growth and development and exploration and coming out of shyness and coming into yourself and Brian... You know, just the ultimate procrastinator, but totally <laughs> ambitious. Yes, right? and and all of that. And so what ended up happening back to your original question here was that at each of those screenings that I did here in Hawaii, um, the conversations afterward were explosive, in a way, so explosive that it was hard for me to even shut them down at the end of the evening. And these were not just conversations with educators, they were with community members, business people, parents, even students. And I think what you were talking about earlier is is that the film gives everybody a chance to ask the big questions that they're thinking about, about education. Will I be prepared? Or really, if if you riff off of the title of the film, which is most likely to succeed, the question is, yeah. who is most likely to <laughs> succeed? Right? right, right, and then, and then for an educator, it's what am I doing to make my students most likely to succeed, given the context of the world. And so, I'm, I'm stoked that that journey went from my first seeing the film in August of 2015, Ted coming to Hawaii for the first time in May of um, 2016, and my curating his visit and really. Giving him a chance to see the awesome things that were happening in this state, all the way to my doing the 100th episode of my podcast with Ted. And we had a chance to go back through a lot of the things that he'd already been thinking about, but also looking ahead into the future as the What School Could Be team builds whatschoolcouldbe.org and the global online community that is now two years old that you referenced a minute ago. That's how you got involved was through the development of the community and all the things that you can do there. So it's been quite a ride, frankly. And I'll just say really quick, Aaron, that the podcast, What School Could Be, was originally titled What School Could Be in Hawaii. And for the first two years, basically, I interviewed innovative, creative, imaginative educators and educational leaders here in this state. Um, And then a year ago, a little over a year ago, Uh, with Ted's permission, I dropped it in Hawaii and began interviewing people outside of Hawaii. And my first interview, Aaron, was with a woman named Janelle Field. Mm. And she's uh, just an all-world superwoman educator, never sleeps person in rural Minnesota. And prepping for that interview and doing that interview blew my mind. I had no idea what was happening in rural Minnesota. And it was so exciting. So anyway, here we are. Um, You know, I'm now up to 102 episodes. The episode that I'm about to release is with Embark Education, which is in Colorado, Um, an incredible micro middle school that's framed by two businesses, a bike shop and a coffee shop. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's just like... And, and I guess, I guess my, my closing thought on this is, Aaron, I am so blessed to be on this journey, doing this work of elevating these thousand points of light that are out there. And what I'm learning about education with each episode that I do, and I know you share this thought, right? Is just incredible. I'm blown away every hour that I spend working on getting ready to interview some educator somewhere is just mind-blowing to me. And so that leaves me feeling hopeful at this moment that all of the hyphenated learnings are gaining enough traction in this country to where we're not fringe anymore. We're actually getting pretty close to the center of the education conversation. And that's the fuel in my tank and what propels me forward.
0: No, I love that. And I think as as you were talking, I think about just... just it's crazy to think that that film's been out that long. It doesn't feel like it. And I was thinking, man, it yeah. has been a long time since we had our community screening back, you know, here where, where I'm at. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think about since then, you think about COVID that obviously shook the pillars of all of society. Yeah. We've got tools like ChatGPT GPT that are, are really, I don't know that they're necessarily like shaking up the pillars of all sectors of life. It has definitely opened up opportunities, but I feel like it's shaked the pillars of education that people are, kind of having that short term um panic or fear about cheating yep. and assessments and things of that nature, which I think just brings us back again to these bigger conversations on what is what is good pedagogy and what are we what are we doing in our in our time with students. You know, yeah. and so I'm thinking about, man, wonder probably needs to be a sequel to the video, but you know, <laughs> I, I, think about all the, you know, you're talking about the amount of time you've had with, with Ted and those conversations. I think you have over a hundred different guests on your podcast and I've been fortunate enough to sit in some community learning networks within what schools could be, whether it's sitting with authors on, you know, a series of their work or just other opportunities that I've, I've heard the questions and I've heard the ideas that other people have shared you know, as you've had these conversations with people, and you've been able to sit in these conversations with educators from all over, with all sorts of different uh, backgrounds, and you know, you think about just the landscape of where they're living, whether it's a a bay uh, like you growing up, or whether it's me sitting on the Mississippi River where I'm—I yep. didn't grow right. up there, but it's where I live. You know, wh- what do you what do you find to be some of those those traits, those mindsets, the dispositions. Let so you kind of pick the the word choice mm-hmm. here with these people that that are actually finding ways to make it happen. As you said, it this the the these hyphenated ways of teaching are getting closer to the center, and I agree. Um, but I still see a lot of areas where it's in pockets. Um, it's getting better, you know. And so as you yeah. have these conversations. Like, what is it that these people have or these organizations have that are, they're moving from? yeah, I know it's good to, no, we're, we're going to do it. You know, do you, do you find any commonalities? And I know every story is always unique, but there's, there's, there's gotta be some, some through lines that that connect the human story through, through them all.
1: I think there are through lines. I think that's a great way to, to put it. Um, But before I say what I've seen, I just want to say for a second, I want to talk or talk for a second about how I've come to this thought and and it, it's important to know, Aaron, that there are lots of let's call them resource libraries out there. There are lots of organizations that are offering tons of resources. EdLeader21, whatever, you just you name it. And whatschoolcouldbe.org is no different. We just have our own set of resources. There's a, a series of themes that tie all those resources together. Uh, we we are putting those resources out there, but we recognize that we're in the long tail of other organizations that are offering resources. And so I think one of the things that we did right two years ago was to realize that you can't just have a resource library. You need to have a community that works with the resource library, but actually exists as a result of the resource library. So community.whatschoolcouldbe.org was built two years ago. And it's on a Mighty Network platform. For those of you who've been, those are your listeners who've been educators a long time, you'll recall maybe the early Nings where educators had the first opportunity to connect with each other virtually before the pandemic, before anybody was even talking about, you know, virtual this or virtual that. And so that community is actually the answer to the question that you just asked. Mm-hmm. How do I know? And what do I know? It's because we're talking to all these different educators. So imagine for a second, Aaron, that you're in the classroom across the hall from me and you're a history teacher and I'm in my classroom and I'm a history teacher. And at some point you're in Iowa and I'm in Honolulu, but the hallway is a virtual hallway, right? And somehow or other in the What School Could Be community or some other community that you might be part of, you and I step across the hallway and we have coffee together on a break. And somehow that spark that happens in that moment, somehow we we might come to the idea that we want to team teach together. And boom, all of a sudden, your kids and my kids are going to have a different experience, a different pedagogical experience, because now two minds are actually working on what it means to engage students in the process of becoming historians, not filling them up with history knowledge, but actually becoming historians. That's what you and I both care about. But we don't know about each other unless there's a mechanism that puts us in, quote, the room together. And the What School Could Be community is that room that we get put together. And then the spark happens and we're on our way. You could take any subject under the sun, biology, chemistry, even better, Aaron, even better, you might be a literature Teacher, or an English teacher, or maybe even a chemistry teacher, and I, the history teacher, we will find a way to do integrated learning. So, we're going to go track down a biology teacher and track down an English teacher, and then we're all going to come together and we're going to put together a unit that involves kids in something, solving some nasty, wicked, hairy problem. Um, and we're gonna do that you know, as early as elementary school. Let's do it. Let's start at the elementary school level. So I think I think the answer to your question is what I've seen is that because, well, not because of, but accelerated by the pandemic, educators are sparking each other across the world in ways that I've never seen in my whole lifetime. And so ideas are jumping fences. Really fast, you know, I'm reading a book right now. What the heck is the name of it? The magic of something. Um, and one of the core ideas in this book, it's the it's the author who wrote "Eat, Pray, love," and I, I can't remember the title all of a second oh, yeah. all of a sudden, but um anyway, the the central idea is that an idea lives on its own. and what it does is it moves from person to person until it finds a host who will make it manifest. And so if the idea is project-based learning, it will move from person to person, you know, until it finally finds Josh and Aaron, one in (laughs) Iowa, one in Hawaii, and it will manifest itself in us. And then we will do what we're going to do. And there there is absolutely no reason why we can't collaborate across 5,000 miles because that's what the pandemic showed us, right? So what I'm seeing is that people are talking to each other and ideas are moving with light speed. And as a result of that, kids' lives are are changing in the classroom because those ideas are spreading. And I'm going to do everything I possibly can, including these podcast episodes, and that's what your episodes do as well, to to spread these ideas. It's a little ironic. It's almost like a pandemic of education ideas (laughs) that are spreading around. It's a virus, you know, but the virus is going after the heart of the thing, which is a traditional education system that's been hidebound for you know 130 years um, and is not serving our students in terms of where we are. I mean good grief with chat GPT4 arriving yesterday if you're still sage on the stage and delivering the good news to your students I would really worry that they're going to be ready for what's happening right now. Um, you know Aaron I read uh, an Edutopia. I know it's only seven a.m. here in Hawaii, but I've already read an Edutopia article. You you, you're you're
0: you're on top of it with only one cup <laughs> want, of coffee today. <laughs> yes, only one cup
1: of coffee. But the Edutopia article had like ten different ways that a teacher can already leverage ChatGPT to help reduce the amount of time that they're spending with typical kinds of things that that um, take time in a teacher's day and free uptime for creative time i'm like oh my god here we go right so anyway sorry that's a that's a long response to to what you
0: asked there no i i love it and as you're talking about those ideas of of conversations and the the good virus spreading just to keep trying to go through to, and, and find its host <laughs> to, to make that magic happen um and yeah. i was just looking up to i think the book's called big magic by elizabeth big gilbert. magic uh, there you yeah. go elizabeth yeah. gilbert yeah and, uh, yeah um I can't help but connect it back to kind of your 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 history of your of your life as you were talking about, you know, when you first went to college you weren't ready, and then you went and yep. into the business sector, and then you knew you you were ready. And I'm thinking about these ideas of this continuous conversation. And one of my personal philosophies is like the the whole goal is to help people move from their point A to their point B, regardless yes. of where we think they are. The idea is like just just constant working and support to help people move to whatever their next step is in their journey. And it's, it's, I I feel like you, you have that through line, like you went and you were, you were working as a chef and then you moved into the hotel stuff. And then you were like, man, I want to, I want to go back and get that degree. And then you were ready for learning. Like then it became authentic where maybe the first time it was, I don't want to call it inauthentic, but inauthentic in the sense that you weren't ready to embrace that yet Um, not that you weren't capable or any of those things Just the brain or your your journey wasn't ready for that and I think that's one of the things that I Mm. continuously try to work through is how do I help keep those conversations going keep the ideas fresh keep planting those seeds and so that when the time is right for them man when they're ready to move the the supports and the network and the stuff are ready to go and I think that's you know something really powerful um, it kind of keeps I, popping up as 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 I'm listening yeah. to your answers today.
1: No, you're you're actually you're actually prompting me to evaluate a little bit deeper at a deeper level. What actually happened when I went back to the University of I went to the University of when I went back to school? <laughs> I mean, what does that when I say to people, I think I was ready to learn. I, I now I'm wondering what does that exactly mean. And I think I'm realizing, Aaron, in this moment, that what that meant was that all of these soft skills that we're talking about, or durable skills, or essential skills, whatever you want to call them, that for more than a decade, I had been developing those skills. And that when the moment came to go to the University of Iowa, which by the way, that was not a, that was a traditional college environment. I went to lectures with 300 other students. I I wrote the papers. I took the tests but I went from a 2.7 cumulative GPA high school graduate to a 4.25 at Iowa. Why? Because I had all the skills in place to be able to thrive in that environment, even though it was probably not the most innovative environment for me to thrive in. It, at the very least, I was my mind was wide open to all the things that the that the University of Iowa and all of its faculty and everything that they were offering me, my mind was wide open to all of that. I was ready and I had the skills to be able to interpret what was coming at me and to make mm-hmm. my own kind of assessments of what I was experiencing, right? And I, I joke often, Aaron, that... You know, I was scared to death when I went to Iowa because I thought I was going to get run over by these hotshot kids coming out of out of high school, you know, eighteen year olds and nineteen year olds who were going to run me over um, at that point. But it turned out to be just the opposite. In fact, I succeeded where a lot of them didn't because I had that. So I think if we think of of life and learning as a series of layers, one on top of the other, I don't think that learning should be K through twelve. A bunch of content, and then you start working on some skills, it should actually start from kindergarten where the skill building and the content analysis happens one on top of the other over and over and over again. So by the time that you graduate from high school, shoot, I mean, just like Embark in, in Colorado, these kids are already running businesses by the time they're exiting middle school, for God's sakes. I love it, right? And so I, I love that you've prompted me to think about what that actually meant. Being ready to learn was the skills that are ready to learn. But th- I just add one more thought to it because Ted and I have talked about this, and I know that you've had a zillion conversations with people about this. Is that kids? Kids come out of the womb ready to learn, um, and over the course of elementary school, that blossoms, and then we all talk about how middle school and high school crushes that out of them. I think it's also it's not just crushing the curiosity out of them. It's not giving them an opportunity to build those muscles that are those skills that we're looking at, the ability to think critically, to discern fact from fiction, whether or not you're reading something that's been written by ChatGPT (laughs) or by a human, right? (laughs) I mean, all of these kinds of things. And so how exciting it would be for a kid to come up through elementary school, to go through middle school, and then into high school with that layered effect going on, You would feel so empowered by the time you were graduating from high school. If you choose to go on to college, great. If you choose to go into business, great. But either way, you're already kind of ready to go. And I think think what my podcast is attempting to do is to capture those educators who have realized this and are executing it at the classroom level and now 100 episodes plus into it it feels like that thousand points of light that I talked about earlier is actually starting to come true. And when you think about the number of kids in those thousand points of light who have been impacted by that, it must be in the millions, but that's educators all over the country. So I think, I think the really challenging question that we have to deal with going forward is, okay, Aaron, you might be doing your thing at your school and I might be doing my thing at my school, um uh, but what about the rest of the school and how can those small steps that you and i are taking to transform teaching and learning in our classrooms to build skills and content together how does that become not just you and i alone but you and i actually transforming our schools and then you know you see how that the virus metaphor really works in that sense but there's lots of antibodies that push back against that for <laughs> sure so that's right i don't know i don't know why viruses are yeah, so much yeah. on my mind this morning
0: <laughs> so, well yeah i anyway. think it's 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 uh you know as as, as we think about some final thoughts here it, the idea is running through my head right now or just like it comes back to a current project i'm working on right now this this, this idea of the power of story and as we're having these conversations and we're having these communities and I'm finding out what works here and what works there, whether it's it's locally or within the same school or in different states. It's continue to find ways to to tell the stories to bring other people on board to go. I want to do that, then I can do that. I think there's like a two-part mindset to that. Yes. And that other piece is as you were talking about all those things, this this idea of of the skills you know, what are their, we call them soft skills, whatever you want to call them. Every, they got yeah. them all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The more we do that in that kind of that K-12 system, I feel like not that kids have to have their whole life figured out because no one does, but they're going to have the skills to be better equipped to determine what the next step is when they're out of the k-12 system and i think about the work that i'm doing in some of these elementaries and you know some of that pushback is some of the work that we feel we create these authentic learning experiences for kids is you can't always put it on a spreadsheet with data points but we know that there is empowerment and there are development of kids mindsets and dispositions going oh my gosh I just worked with so and so. I just created this. We created this. If we keep building on that for several years, they'll have a resume. They'll, they'll they'll have a body of work that will help them take that next step to whatever it is. Versus, let's just be so enamored by by content standards that yeah, they can regurgitate things, but where does that take you? Um, right. I know that could be a whole whole conversation um, even in and of itself. But those that that's where my my head's spinning. Yeah. As you're sharing that. And so, you know, as maybe like the the final question to be respectful of your time is you, you've got all these things happening, all these stories, you're connecting with all these people. We just had this wonderful conversation, you know, what's next for you? What, what, what do you hope the next parts of your, your work continue to be? I'm sure a lot of this is to keep trying to do what you're doing, but you know, as you continue to have the next hundred episodes and whatever comes our way and things like that, what is it that, that that you're hopeful for
1: yeah that's a that's a great question because you know i could do i could get to 200 episodes and will i have done just 200 episodes will it be will the next 100 be essentially the same as the first 100 and and that's i'm thank you for prompting me you know to think about that um i'm i think one of the things that i i really want to think through carefully um is the ways and I know this is probably on your mind as well Aaron is what are the ways that each of these episodes can in and of themselves become a spark, um, a professional learning experience in your pocket in your iPhone or your Android phone. Um, you know in what ways can they actually impact the lives of kids So right now it's it's a little bit I'm leaving it to chance. I'm just saying you know all right, you know, awesome, coming upwards of sixty thousand downloads in almost a hundred countries. That's great. But I'm just assuming that these episodes are having an impact. But I wonder how I might be more intentional about that. So actually, to give you a to give you an ex- uh, you know a cl- maybe a closing story, my hundred and second episode is with a guy named Paul Balaz. And Paul Balaz is a Hawaii educator. Um, who teaches at um, just down the road from me, actually, at Kaiser High School. And Paul is remarkable in the ways that he has connected the school and the community. He's connected kids in the school to the community. He's actually almost eliminated the walls between the school and the community. And so that episode already been released already Um, getting ready for that was just such a treat to get to know Paul and the extent to which his kids are like, you know, engaging in service learning projects, cleaning beaches, building gardens, you know, you know, saving native forests and so on and so forth. Um, and so I bring Paul up because he's kind of that intentional thing for me. So about an hour and a half from now, Paul and I together are going to present at the Western Regional Continuums of Service Conference. And that's like service learning's annual conference, and they do it on a regional basis. And it's hosted in Hawaii this year, uh, down in Waikiki. And so a whole bunch of higher ed educators are coming together, and they're going to hear from Paul. And I'm going to introduce him. I'm going to explain how he ended up on the podcast. He's going to actually do a slide deck that shows all the things that he's doing. And then, you know, we're going to make sure that people know that the podcast exists. And so I think this might be the first moment where I've gotten really intentional about how I keep going with a guest after the episode is over, after it's been released. And I think going forward, that's what I want to do more of. I want to figure out ways to do that. To connect these educators in environments other than their campus, where they come out and become a resource to other people. Um, and I wanna, I wanna be real intentional about how that happens. And I just gotta figure it out. But that's it, that's something to look forward to. Thank you for asking that question. Um, and that's something that I'm gonna be looking forward to over the next year or two. Um, as I
0: move towards you know 200 episodes, and God willing, I'm going to get there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, I look, well, I look forward to that learning as well, and I think that that's that's a really fascinating approach of infusing yeah. the podcast as we listen to it and you know we all listen to podcasts for various reasons but you know a lot of it we, yeah. we hope to get something out of it when we listen to education podcasts and to be able to have that follow-up learning is, is yeah. a really great way as we you know it's almost kind of like getting a a survey of a bunch of different potential courses and you find the one you like and, and yes. boom, go for it so exactly. i think that, that, that's, really, that's that's really that's really great yeah. you know i want to be respectful of your time that you are on your way to a conference of things of that nature and i know you and i could could literally talk for hours. But if people want to learn more about you, they want to find more about the work that we've talked about, I'll definitely have, obviously, everything we've talked about so far linked in the show notes. But if there's anything that you want to highlight, where are some of the best places for people to learn more about your work and and all the things we've talked about today?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the easiest portal to go through is whatschoolcouldbe.org. And when you arrive at the homepage, the nav bar at the top, Um, One of the buttons on the nav bar is podcast, and that will take you to my podcast website. So they're linked together. Uh, My bio is there. My, my team is highlighted there, my editor and, and the guy who does my music, Um, the whole uh, kind of core beliefs of the podcast are there. All of my guests are listed there. I know most people listen to their podcasts using, uh, you know, an app on their phone or, or their smart device. Um, but sometimes the web page really tells you a lot. And so whatschoolcouldbe.org is the easiest portal to go through. It also, Aaron, is the portal that will get you to the What School Could Be global online community. So in the nav bar at the top is community. You can tap on that. Um, if you're an educator, boy, we would love to have you as a member. There is absolutely no cost to anybody for anything involved in any of this work. Um, so we we are free. Uh, and we just want to nurture you and support you and help you and connect you with other people. And so I think that's that's the way to do it. I'm also on Twitter at Josh Rapun, J O S H R E P P U N, and also W S C B Podcast. That's also my Twitter handle as well. And um, there's a couple of Facebook pages, but those are easy to find um, as you go through. So
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, well, perfect. We will definitely get all that linked in. And I know that you'll have some uh, new followers from this show because you've you've shared some really insightful things today. And I know your work goes even deeper into that. So I know personally, thank you for the work you do. And I know you don't do it alone. There's a huge team and you've got your own crew that you work with. And so, I mean, I know you put in countless hours, but with all things, I know there's a whole list of names that, that, that get contributions to that as well. And um, I look forward to continuing to learning for you, from you, both in the community, through your podcast and whatever your, your next endeavors with the podcast turn out to be. So this has been a real treat to uh, bring you on the show and hopefully it was enjoyable to be on the the flip side of the podcast um, (laughs) structure for you. And uh, you know, as I, I thank you for all that you do uh, for, for educators and, and, and people involved looking to uh, increase learning and and opportunities for all. So, so thank you for that. Thank you,
1: Aaron. Real pleasure to be with you today. Hey, 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 hey,
0: chaos! Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs. Me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Hey, 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 chaos!